Hello, and welcome to the Overtime Leader Podcast. I am your host, Jillian Davis, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you today's podcast where I sit down with Bud Cadell, founder of Nobel, a change and org design consultancy that really gets teams to work together and make a lasting impact. I met Bud a few years ago and was fortunate enough to have the chance to sit down with him while I was in LA at the end of October. I hope that you find our chat really interesting. Um, We cover lots of things from how to implement change, how to know which tools to use, and then a couple of tangents um, that I hope you'll find as relevant as we did. So enjoy. This will be the last podcast of 2017, uh, but looking forward to bringing lots more energy and guests and insights into the podcast in 2018. And please feedback uh, if you'd like us to talk, cover a topic, if you'd like to be a guest, you can get in touch via our website at overtimeleader.com. That's it for me this year. Have a really happy holidays and look forward to hearing from you all in the new year. Great. So I'm here with Bud Cadell from Nobel. Hi, Bud. Welcome. Hello. Uh, Bud, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of insight um, into what you're doing and why you're doing it. I'm absolutely happy to. Uh, Nobel is a change agency. That's how we talk about ourselves. We help leaders realize change inside their organizations and then leave the organization more responsive to the outside world and to their competitors. Fantastic. And how did you get into that? I'm a complete heretic <laughs> in this topic. I was a software engineer, designer, found myself doing a lot of consulting work, um, worked at a couple internet startups, but basically like eight or nine years ago, I was the innovative product services guy. Companies would hire me to create new products and services and think about those. And my batting average was terrible at actually getting those things implemented. Mm -hmm. And I worked and worked and worked at it. But what I fundamentally realized at the end of the day was that the organizations themselves were rejecting those ideas, um, almost like an immune response, because they weren't set up to accept new ideas, the incentive structures weren't correct to accept risk and innovation. So I, you know, I love making new things, but I gave up and decided someone's going to fix the way organizations work. Right. So going on the inside and creating that environment that allows for new ideas. Yeah, exactly. And has that changed? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, took, it took trial and error. I mean, before I started Nobel about three years ago, I was a partner at a New York firm called Undercurrent. Um, really, really brilliant people work there. We sort of made that transition from you know helping GE 3D print jet engine brackets to actually start to change the fundamental nature of General Electric. And that took time to understand um, how to do that in a fast-moving corporate environment that already has a really well-defined culture. I mean, GE is like the poster child for Six Sigma and mm-hmm. for the way to run an organization for the last hundred years. So we learned a lot by helping them adapt. Right. And how do you, so like, you know, a lot of companies don't have that benefit of having that strong culture. And that's almost part of the work when, when dealing with change is trying to get them to understand what that is. How do you, where do you start when you come into a company that, you know, might not have it all figured out? So the companies definitely have a culture. But it may not be an adaptive culture. It could be a maladaptive culture, meaning that the way that the culture behaves, the reality of work is actually harmful mm-hmm. to change and harmful to the people who even work there. Yeah. 
Um, the first thing that we do, uh, we have a very well-defined process, but the first step looks a lot like other consulting companies in some ways. So we jump in, we do a discovery phase that looks at everything from one-to-one -one interviews with a representative sample of people who work there, mm. up and down the hierarchy, like different races, different genders, so we try to get as much of a complete picture as we can. We also do um, agile retrospectives with teams and projects, so that way we actually get an understanding of how the work works. Right. Um, but then we do an exercise with leadership we call culture cards, where we literally take like index cards with cultural themes on them and looks like sounds like on the backside of them, mm -hmm. and we arrange them in a few different domains: purpose, strategy, structures, and systems. And we like just so like here's what we saw, and it was just doing an audit or something like that. It was when we turned them into tangible cards that leaders could sit at a table and do a card sort exercise with. Yeah. Where they could be like, okay, this one is actually like more harmful, this one's a bigger priority, or I didn't even know that that's happening. Mm. Like that just becomes a more physical thing and they can like touch it and feel it and it's not in a deck, it's just a card on the table. Yeah. That is a way that we can really mirror back, okay, this is the culture you have, what do you want to change? And what we think needs to change. That's really neat. I can imagine how impactful just having that all out on the table visually and like it's very different than in a deck yeah. and being able to kind of like move things around because one card will influence another card I'm sure in terms of behaviors and attitudes sure. um, and you can kind of see the effect. And people want to take the cards back like <laughs> a couple cards back with them because like oh I've got to go talk to my team about this because again on the back side it's like looks like it's a behavior that we noticed or someone reported and sounds like it's a direct quote without an attribution. Mm -hmm. So that they're like, oh my God, who said this? This is really like, this is really terrible that this is the sort of culture we have. Or mm -hmm. this is really great that this is the culture we have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both come up. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm really keen to uh, talk about change because um, what I'm seeing in both scale-ups, startups, and in corporate uh, change management has become um, a responsibility for a lot of managers to manage, specifically in uh, the people behavior side of things. So a lot of us don't deal with change very well. Um, you know, you can learn on how to deal with that, but it's really hard on an individual to uh, come across, you know, anxieties, uh, fears in regards to change, and then also trying to bring in innovation and change into systems that don't allow for it, but they're being measured and uh, performed against their ability to deliver new products, deliver new services. Um, so I, I feel it's affecting everybody. It's not being talked about at a level that it should be um, because it, it it's, it's a big deal. It's a big responsibility, and it's just now an expectation that you'll lead your team through this change era. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start with the basic truth that in the last 30 years, we've just stopped training managers. Yeah. And the trainings that they are exposed to are the, like, the lowest common denominator, how many courses can we buy per dollar. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the training industry has become like, let's create material that a 20-year-old fresh out of college, I can train them to do it. And it's, it's very, it's still very much talking head or like, like it's just not high quality in terms of training to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then, so it's based out of like, we're not supporting these people with continued education and then apply sort of the globalization, technology, disruption lens on everything and look at the massive change to your point. And so people are less equipped and the environment is more chaotic. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so there's no, there's no change management training and change management has changed so dramatically in the last 
decade. So it's not just about, we talk about the difference between punctuated change and gradual change. And the punctuated change is sort of what we're used to in sort of like M&As and things like that. There's a big change that you've got to go through or we're going to move into a new market. Yeah. And there's like a process to it. And even that has really atrophied inside organizations. Like they have forgotten how to do that. And that's basic change management work. Yeah. And then there's sort of the gradual or evolutionary change that just happens like week to week consumer behavior shift. A new app launches people's expectations radically change about what a banking service should feel like, for example. And there are no sensing and adapting muscles built into companies. So a lot of what we do is, is look at that. We talk about uh, the fact that the capacity for change is the last competitive advantage in a developed economy. Mm. And that's really what we try to install inside organizations. Usually we're, we're hired because of one punctuated change that has happened. A new leader has come in. Uh, an M&A has occurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, layoffs have just happened. But it's really about then honing their gradual change muscle as well. Like, let's get them through this massive punctuated change and then let's build in the sensing and adapting functions back into the organization. And so how, like, how do you go about that? Yeah, good question. <laughs> uh, a few different ways. So, um, one, we like after we finish our discovery work, then this turns into a series of what we call pilots. They're safe to fail experiments inside the culture, mm-hmm. but they're everything from how we build better sensing muscles to things like how do we budget more effectively. Um, should we look at cross-functional teams versus silos? Mm. But they're meant to be like three to six month experiments with only like one set of teams or applied to only one project. So, so you're th- showing them that. It's possible. It's possible, and it's not going to, like, harm. Like, our first value is, like, do no harm. Yeah. And so I can't just go in and wholesale change an organization unless, like, they're, like, literally on the verge of bankruptcy. But most of the time, these are still successful companies that are just really struggling with some sort of big change. And so we pilot these changes. If it works, it doubles down across the organizations, and we codify, like, a way of working for this company. Mm -hmm. Um, And if it fails, it fails, and that's great. Yeah. Like, some of our pilots should definitely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and learn, like, experience what that feels like and learn how to adapt and pick up. Right. And, you know, not see it as, I think a lot of people, when they reach failure, they're so critical. We should never do it. This is exactly why we should never do it again. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We can't go there. Um, And, yeah, I think getting comfortable with that notion of, and I hate, I actually hate the word failure because, you know, it's, it's got such a negative connotation to it. It's, you haven't failed if you've tried something. Right. And learned. And learned, exactly. It's failure yeah. if you haven't learned and you keep doing it over and over again. Yeah. Um, but if you if it didn't work and you learned something from it, that's a big success, I think, in today's business world. Yeah. Like one of the examples of pilots that uh, routinely fail at first for us, so many companies now, I mean, obviously they're looking at the way their organization works and they just see silos and they see the, the harm that silos can cause. So they want to move to more cross-functional work, mm-hmm. but they don't understand their like critical implications of cross-functional work. From a talent perspective, you have to have people who can work outside of their discipline, who can see a larger picture. Yeah, that's like problem A. Problem B is that you have to have good learning and development muscles so they understand the way the business works as a whole. Yeah, because if they were just siloed players before, they don't understand how a decision made at one point in the value chain ricochets down yeah. and causes problems. Yeah, and so. We'll try to do a cross-functional pilot, but people won't have the talent. The companies may not have the talent profile that they meant were meant to hire for, or they right. haven't trained people in that way. And it's a learning of like, oh god, yes, we have to reinvest in our people. 
we have to get, like if you truly want to move faster and more cross-functionally, we have to hire differently. And that, that's usually a great signal to learn, but it, you know, it feels bad because you're like, I just wanted to be, I wanted squads. Yeah. Oh my God, don't no. talk to me about squads. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I'm, I'm keen, let's dig more into this cross-functional because that, obviously working with product teams, you know, every product team is now a cross-functional team. They report into different managers who may not be aligned. That's one thing I've seen that really interesting is, you know, you might have in a product team, um, a product owner, uh, developers, designers, they, they all might have three different bosses that aren't aligned and giving wrong, like different signals and different messages. Um, but the notion that you put these people into a room, give them an outcome, it will all just go swimmingly fine. Right. Um, what have you seen work well and work horribly <laughs> wrong? Yeah, I mean, like when, and this is probably dated because Etsy has certainly had some challenges in the last couple of years, but again, my team loves to research how other companies function mm. and to get like deeper than just a blog post of how it works. And a couple of years ago, we interviewed the folks at Etsy and they had the problem of, you know, they have buyers and sellers as customers and they have like desktop versus mobile and there's a mobile app just for, just for um, sellers. Yeah. And they had the problem of how do you align people together because those are, those need to be aligned in some way. Um, and they had this really great process of every quarter, they had a user group who looked at both buyers and sellers and they would actually help to align everyone's roadmaps because they'd say like, look, these are the priorities for the next few months. Here's mm. the top three for buyers, top three for sellers. They'd meet with every product owner and product manager and align their roadmap mm. at every quarter point and then they'd let them go. And it's like up to you to decide how you get the work done. But That's it's great. Like this quarterly process. We look at a lot of like, what are the rhythms inside companies that yeah. need them to come back together. That worked really well for a long time. I don't know why maybe it stopped or I think because we've become a public company, um, like <laughs> the speed that you thought you worked at is no longer act like enough. Yeah. Um, I've seen it work terribly in lots of lots of different ways. Um, we do a lot of work in San Francisco, so everyone thinks the answer is OKRs. Yes. Um, and I've seen probably 15 or 16 OKR rollouts. I've seen 15 or 16 failed OKR rollouts. What, what fails in an OKR rollout? Or what leads to failure? Oh my god, in so many different ways. Like it's such a precise tool for a precise problem. And at Google, it was like the right again. Who's going to use this? It was like the right mix of people that Google would hire, like yeah. like top engineers in their field who will commit to that sort of rigor. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen OKRs fail for lots of different ways. Um, most recently, I saw a company who they rolled out OKRs first in the very prescriptive way that OKRs tell you to roll it out. Um, people felt like that was more rigor than the culture ever expected from yeah, them. So they yeah. pushed back. Yeah. So the next rollout they did, and like a year later, they made it really loosey-goosey, and they're just sort of like, opt-in. And that's like <laughs> the exact opposite of, what, of how OKRs function. Yeah. So then it was like complete misalignment, but also just pockets of the company that had opted out. Yeah. And no one was aligned anymore. Yeah, and inconsistency. And yeah. That's fast. What do you think of the... Um, in the OKR framework, uh, the point system, like the measurement system, because I've had so much pushback on that. I, I'm like, I'm agnostic, like whatever works, works. But I think there's, um, I've seen like allergic reactions to being put against a number. Yeah. Uh, especially if like, you know, if 70%, I think there's an, 
is good oh, yes. is considered good yeah um but I, like yeah it's such a it's a fascinating um framework in the sense that it worked perfectly well for those people but at scale and in a, to other cultures and other people it will not work like yeah. it will not work yeah like everyone's had that boss who's like 70 percent you know it's yeah. the bad office space example of like <laughs> just like, enough the is middle great. of this 21 pieces of player but really people <laughs> choose to do more yeah um yeah, I'm not an expert in OKRs in any way, even though I've seen so many rollouts. It's not a tool that I recommend for organizations. Mm. I, I like some of the processes around it in terms of aligning as a leadership team yeah. for your goals, and then you cascade that down and cascade yeah. it back up. Like, yeah. That's super smart. A lot of our clients have problems quantifying things that are are more qualitative measures, yeah, yeah. and they really find themselves stuck there. We also we do some trainings around um, goal setting, and like the first thing to know about goal setting is human beings tend to like overinflate what they can do yes and it's so important that like you question your anchors you question your objectives because so many teams hit the end of a quarter and they feel exhausted and they feel like like they're just hitting their head on the wall because they gave themselves unreal objectives yeah zynga was a perfect example case study of that of they were a company after sort of their initial success they they thought that every game afterwards was going to be just as successful, and they kept giving these ridiculous quarterly objectives to teams. Mm-hmm. And of course, it would never make it, and it would just roll over the pain into the next quarter. And like the stories inside were just like a substance abuse problems because of it. Like people were getting divorced. Like it was creating like real turmoil mm-hmm. in the company to set objectives in that way. And and it's unfortunate, but like that's not abnormal. Like right. I've seen that <laughs> often, and like the pain and anxiety employees experience nowadays and I think it's an interesting relationship between person and company especially in um, scale-ups maybe also in corporate but it feels like the expectation to give is so much more Um, we have accessibility 24-7 into the workplace Um, on the flip side there's this expectation that the organization should give back to you so like lunch um, gym whatever your lifestyle Um, but you know some I've had to say to a lot of people like I think you just need to take a, a big step back from the company and like at the end of the day you didn't start it um, you're yeah. a salaried employee um, be realistic with yourself be realistic with what you can do um, and not take it all on board take it take this huge weight on your shoulders or one of my favorite line, lines is you're not paid enough to care about that stuff <laughs> um, but in terms of you know the this over-committing and super ambitious goals, which then lead to failure, lead to feeling like you're a failed individual because you haven't achieved, but you've done a lot in that time period, um, is fascinating and so unhealthy. Like, so <laughs> well, like picking like one thing you said apart, there's definitely this confusion of accommodations versus opportunities. Like we liken a lot of our San Francisco clients like a cruise ship. You're like, you're given every amenity possible and it's to keep you on the cruise ship, yeah. right? And yeah. it's to keep you working late hours versus the, like, the backpack trip across Europe you did when you were like 21 where like you lived in hostels and you had like none of those things, but yeah. it was the experience of it and like the things that you were learning. Yeah. And, you know, of course there's like loss aversion and things like that when you have free lunch and free dinner and you have to like scale that back. I mean, we have clients who literally have to compete with the company in the, like a next door because they're like who has the best private chef 
and they'll lose engineers like on a week-to-week basis based on like meals and things like that. And for me, it's like how can you actually create through autonomy and control and empowerment and a sense of mission a better opportunity to come work at this company and better accommodations. Exactly. Yeah. But you have to start thinking about that early on because it's really hard to scale back once you have totally like razor scooters everywhere, personal <laughs> massages, car washes, you know, laundry. Yeah. Yeah. Really hard to scale back. And then I think the focus is on all the wrong things. Like all this money is put to these accommodations and yet training, um, focus on proper goal setting, uh, yeah. procedures, uh, leadership alignment time. Like it is, it's like, trying to get water from a stone sometimes, but then the budget for perks or whatever is yeah. ridiculous. I'm like, well, what actually are people here to work for? Are they here to work for cheese and avocado? Or are they here to work? Avocado toast. Yeah. <laughs> and, and is that the reality? Is that why, you know, if, if engineers are leaving because the chef's better, well, who cares about learning programs? Right. That or they only bring in the learning programs that are like the bad of the moment. Yeah. You know, like Radical Candor was everywhere for yes. a while. Yeah. And it wasn't tailored. They didn't understand. And again, I'm not wholly against that program. I'm like, you know, agnostic if it works in an environment, it works. But I saw so many of our startup clients just like have speaker series where they bring in people like that. And yeah. like one of the cultures we worked at was already a culture that used information as a weapon and used opinions as a weapon. And like radical candor, you know, and again, they bastardized the approach in some way. So it was just sort of like another way I could dump my opinion on you and go yeah. radical candor and leave the room. Permission to be an asshole. Yeah. Like, no, but I care about you. You know, which again is against some of the things in the book to begin with, but they were only bringing in sort of like whatever's the bad of the moment. They yeah. weren't really thinking about how do I tailor it to my culture? How, what are our future goals and what are the learning yeah. programs that would really help us get there? It was just sort of like, Oh, I saw this in HBR or first round, so I'm gonna bring in this speaker. Yeah, exactly. And it like it's ticking a box instead yeah. of actually um, strategically thinking about the impact that approach can have on the business for the now and the future. Um, but yeah, I've seen that too often. Um, okay, back to change. Yes. <laughs> um, so, I, what kind of advice can you give to a manager who, you know, is leading a team through a change environment and the team are resistant or they're anxious um, and and their boss doesn't understand, you know, the the impact change management has on them. Like, what kind of advice can you give? A few things. One, narrative really matters. Mm-hmm. So with leaders, we usually sit down and build a narrative structure for them to talk about why. Yeah. We call it three Ps and a Q. It's purpose. So why are we doing this? Why now? Picture. Um, what does it look like when we're successful? So what does it look like when we finally turn the corner? The last P is part to play. So really starting to think about like what everyone's part to play is. Like here's what I can, here Jillian, here's what you yeah. can really do to help us get there. And then the Q is just leaders should be vulnerable enough to say that there are questions I don't have answers to yet. And so many of the leaders that we work with, their first instinct is like, oh, we don't know all the details on this, so I'm just going to keep mum. And that's where you get, like, there is no such thing as an information backing. People will just make up stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the sun is in the sky because it's a chariot that crosses the sky, right? Like, we'll come <laughs> up with, like, yeah. very fun but also very dangerous stories yes. in an information vacuum. So yeah. we'll walk them through a narrative development process so that they understand how to communicate and that they, like, lead by repetition, really. Yeah. And that, in that form, I think... The other thing to really look at is, um, 
So evaluate your people based on a few criteria of how resilient they are, how accountable they are, how self-aware. Mm. Like those are really, I think, the three superpowers for workers in the 21st century, especially knowledge workers. Um, am I self-aware enough to understand that I feel scared when it comes to change and I yeah. can check in with myself and I can probe that a bit more and figure out where, to, where does that come from? Am I really scared for my career or am I more scared because it's just a new way of working or something that I don't fully understand? Um, accountability, I mean, I think it's just people are more, have to be more entrepreneurial now than ever before just because the speed and the pace of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then resilient, like if you feel yourself faltering, everyone burns out, can you actually take the time to go self-care Yeah. and take care of yourself? And that kind of builds into self-awareness, right? They're so interlinked. Yeah. Um, and I guess also using that criteria when you hire. Yeah. Because building that right team and figuring out yeah, I think I think a lot of people still hire for skill set, right. primarily, um, because attitudes and soft skills are harder to measure, not impossible. Um, but yeah, th- and, but I, I, you know, you've got to do that pre work. You've got to think about where you're going, what kind of teams do you want to create, and then match that to attitudes, skills, and types of people. Um, I've heard of a really bad way Google tries to do this. Yep. Uh, especially for the resiliency, so. This has happened to a friend of mine a few times, and apparently it's a non—it's a common practice at Google, which is you'll go through the interview process and you'll do like fifteen interviews, and then they'll come back to you, and you're interviewing for a specific position. I'll come back to you and say, like, Jillian, I love you, but I want you in this position, which is something you've never heard of, and it's a test to see if you'll still participate and how you react to that change. Hmm. I'm just like, would you take this position instead? And it's not. Not necessarily a lower position, it's just a different it's position completely a different, different team yeah. to see how resilient you are. And also, I'm sure, to test like your loyalty to Google. But yeah. I think that's a terrible practice, but it is an interesting... <laughs> Why is it terrible? I think it... Well, I, mean, I think it's terrible to be deceitful in any way or to, like, uh, or to create structures and processes like that that are inherently opaque and... Are there just to fuck with you? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure if that would lead to trust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is, I think Google says, really important in team dynamics, according to one of their research pieces. But yeah, I don't think I trust the organization if it um, fooled me in that way. I think I'm you a, get a lot of like super loyal fanboys who say yes to that. My friend, who's a genius, a literal genius, has now gone through the interview process two different times, and. Um, they did that to him the first time on the second time he was like just don't do that to me and they still did it and he was like no I'm not taking the job like I know what you're doing I'm like a brilliant brilliant person yeah um so yeah how would you look for change agents in an interview process I mean we ask questions like uh Talk to me about a time when you worked in an environment that underwent change. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it, it helps that you've been through it before and you sort of understand that it's challenging and that it's not like when I was hired years ago to be a change agent inside a big organization. I a mistake I made was I put a calendar on the wall and I literally marked wins and losses per day <laughs> of like today was a win, today was a loss in terms of the change we we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And then the L's just stacked up for like two months <laughs> and I threw the calendar away. <laughs> so I had to learn that resilience. That isn't just telling someone you need to be resilient isn't practical. They have to have gone through it. We also tend to ask people, um, tell us about the worst job you've ever had and not the best job. Yep. And tell me how you coped in that environment and tell yep. me like what was it and how did you 
did you end up surviving it or when did you just how did you decide to leave it because that tells us about a, a really challenging organization that they worked in but also like their own coping strategies and what worked and what didn't and being able to talk that tells us a lot a lot about self-awareness totally um, those are the questions that we typically ask they're really good and I know some people that are self-aware enough to say I'm not good with change mm. what what's the future for them in the workplace <laughs> One, you know, so it's the sort of like, uh, whenever I say like, I'm too neurotic to be a parent, and then everyone <laughs> says, that means you're going to be a great parent, and I'm like, no, really, you should, you should see. Um, like, if someone says, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, they're self-aware enough to say like, I would find change really challenging, mm-hmm. I sometimes doubt uh, that they would. I think, you know, we talk about there being a spectrum of work between fixed and fluid environments, so... Fixed environments are more where you have sort of IP or or um, some sort of protection or moat around your business that you can continue to do the same thing in the same way. Yeah. Fluid is much more about speed of novelty. You're trying to find product market fit all the time. We have to hire people in fluid environments who really understand change and are almost you know obsessive about changing. But they also wouldn't do well in a fixed environment because they'd be trying to reinvent the wheel every day. Yeah, right. So there is a mix. And even within teams, there are fixed work and fluid work. I mean, yeah. We did a big project in New York with a 120-person marketing team, and they had everything from like trying to understand Instagram culture to just like taking 10,000 photos a week and editing them. So like the photo studio was just a, a fixed environment, mm-hmm. and really we looked at continuous improvement and lean product development and things like that to help them like shave off minutes and seconds of their work mm. and then in the Instagram took like strategy side of things it was much more about how do we build sensing and adapting muscles and like waste was okay because we were like trialing and experimenting right. and that so time. you have that balance yeah yeah I think I, I would agree with that I think it going forward there are gonna it's gonna be like ebbs and flows right there you can't say it will be a completely um, 100% entrepreneur, entrepreneurial and innovative role there will be you know, you have to give change time to stick um, and balance out and, you know, reflect and see how it's going. Um, but I, I do think everyone kind of needs to uh, reflect on, on what, the, like, the nature of the industry in any industry is going through and what that means for their roles because the ladder climbing is kind of over, yeah. in a sense. It's um, a jungle gym now. It's a jungle gym. <laughs> Full of twists and turns. Um, yeah, and, and what that means for them and what's important for them. Uh, yeah, and, what I thought, and I don't have an answer to this. I'm about to take us in a weird path that like, may not have a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> I'm the ready. I've been reflecting on lately is if you look at the, especially in the U.S., if you look at the rate of new startups, it's actually at its lowest in a few decades. Yeah. Um, and we're starting to see more M&A activity. But you're starting to see changes coming from, like, let's look at the last election. They're black swan like events they're not like a new competitor popped up they're like radical shifts in globalization and technology and populism and nationalism are affecting organizations yeah yeah like I, like any organization in the health field right now trying to understand in the u.s like how they're gonna respond to what's happening to the aca and things like that are just wholly out of their control so yes. Like, I almost wonder, we, we train organizations in sort of the punctuated change management process, which feels a little, like, it's, it's sort of like change management 101. Then there's the gradual, how do you sense and adapt? And I wonder if there is a missing muscle, which is, like, how do you respond to these cataclysmic or these 
like uh, unplanned, un- yeah. unforeseen. Yeah, because yeah. I think I wonder if that's really where more change is going to come from. I think yeah. like if you're a person who lived under Brexit or the last election here in the U.S., like however you feel, there's still a massive amount of I think it's uncertainty more yeah. than anything. Yeah, that is causing. Uh, stress hormones in yeah. all of us, and like, 100%. The dread and yeah. inside organizations, how that's in, like how that is being responded to. I find really. I'm I'm interested to see. Um, so obviously, our generation, I think we're struggling with this because we were um, reinforced that because our parents lived through a relatively stable time period and then instilled that in us, and that's you know you get a degree, you get a job, you get a house, and you retire. And then we've been challenged completely by that notion. It's impossible to buy homes in most, you know, metros. Um, really challenging then to pay off student debts. The yeah. thought of retiring seems like, well, I know a lot of people that aren't interested in it. Um, everything that we've been taught to know has been challenged. But then the generation coming up now, living through this, will be fascinating to see how they respond in the workplace because nothing they've known is stable. Um, whereas everything we had known was, um, so I think that's going to be really fascinating and what it will do to businesses, to industries, um, to government. Yeah. Um, on that note, <laughs> that was a great, a great tangent. Um, yeah, and I don't think we'll see a light for that one in a while. Um, well, it also just means uh, that organizations themselves have become, like we used to talk about the water cooler being a place you talk about like, yeah. Friends. Yeah. The TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now the water cooler work is a place where you're, where you're trying to come to grips with socioeconomic <laughs> and political conditions. Yeah. And organizations just have to be more amenable to that. And like this is you you turn to your coworkers more than you ever have to try to make sense of these things and feel a sense of security. And that's also a completely different role that organizations haven't played. No, and you know what? I've this is another tangent. So I'm sorry. Yeah, tangents are my favorite things. <laughs> what I've seen, because it's been such a divisive, um, both in Brexit and yeah. in the American elections, um, and bringing politics to work, and organizations internally taking kind of a stand because you know people feel they they have to, leaders feel yeah. they have to say where they stand. Um, you know, I've been in some cases where I thought, and and this whole conversation around inclusivity, right? So in some companies I've been in, I'm like, wow, if you were on the other side you would have to keep that secret. You cannot be your full self at work mm-hmm. in this organization. Although it's not making a public stand on where they are in this um, topic, internally the whole dialogue is definitely supportive and you know, completely against the other side. Like the things said by leadership, I'm like, oh, like think of, you might not, you might have someone in here yeah. on that side and how would that make them feel and are you happy to be employed, that you employ them? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I found it really interesting how, because of the divisiveness of all the stuff, bringing that into work, um, and really not, in some cases, not creating a safe space for people to be who they are, and yeah. yet we're talking so much about bringing your whole self to work and creating inclusive spaces. Yeah, I'm not totally about bringing your whole self to work. <laughs> <laughs> just sort of, you know, bring whatever self you feel most comfortable. Bring what you need to bring to work. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's also we like we can't forget that we live in a political environment where things that used to be non-political have been politicized. Mm-hmm. Like human rights yeah. is now a like Democrat Republican divide issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then those divides we now bring into the organizations, which were never things that. You know, and, and it would just seem crazy that you'd have to like stand up for these things or stand up for like 
Nazis are bad, right? <laughs> like, even that's become a divisive topic <laughs> after the world fought a war against it. So it's like, so Tim Cook has to get up and be like, you know what? Apple thinks Nazis are bad. Yeah. It can seem like a radical statement to make for someone internally if who if they're more right-leaning. Yeah. Uh, leaning, but, yeah. like, also, like, when did that become yeah. a political <laughs> issue, right? Yeah, yeah totally. God, work is so sp- stressful. <laughs> no wonder. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, in Take us back. Yeah. <laughs> Great tangents. Um, so I always try to get uh, the guests to kind of share um, resources or tools that they have found useful in their, whether it's their subject area or just in leadership in general, um, you guys have a really great um, source for content. I, I referenced it in the newsletter, and I constantly go back to it. Um, so I urge everyone to check that out. As Future of work. Future of work. Yeah. Dot. Dot. N-O-B-L-I-O. I'll link to it. Yeah, just check it out. I will link to it. Um, yeah. But yeah, highly recommend all of Novell's um, really great content that you guys put out. Is there any like books or podcasts that you think you know just n- hit the nail on the head when it comes to managing change internally? Ooh. There's so much content now. I mean, this is when we started that blog uh, three years ago. We were sort of the first in the market to start to collect all this stuff in one place. But now, like I just saw that Quartz launched uh, a work at, at work. Oh, um, interesting. It looks really good. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Google's rework stuff has been great. Yeah. Um, first round review is a place we go to. I mean, I still live in uh, my RSS reader with all these things, mm-hmm. and I'm like constantly looking for it. There's even, you know, there's a Reddit subreddit on um, lean management practices, and I, you know, we don't necessarily preach from the lean bible, but they often talk about um, the trials and tribulations of trying to apply lean inside organizations and what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Oh, um, that's great. Yeah, so that's really interesting to look into. Um, yeah, I think more. There's just so much content in the world. Now. There is. I mean, like, I, if I had infinite money and time, I'm more interested now in creating a GitHub for ways of working mm. so that you would have a repository that companies could publish, like, this is how we do performance reviews or this is how we get feedback, and people could fork those and yep. make changes. That, that's like my uh, fever dream of an idea that I want to build future work into someday. I love that. Like, an, like open source um, yeah. ways of working. That's really great. Great way to end. Thank you so much, Bud, for um, being on the Overtime Podcast. Uh, It's been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Um, And good luck with all the change work you have to do. I appreciate the the good luck. (laughs) (laughs) We both know. We both need it. Yeah.